0: Hi, and welcome to the April edition of the EVJ podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. For this episode, we welcome Richard Piercy discussing atypical myopathy and James Brown discussing umbilical resections. Richard Piercy is a professor of comparative neuromuscular disease at the Royal Veterinary College in London and also an RCVS recognised specialist in equine internal medicine. Richard and Sonia Gonzalez Medina have recently published the paper titled A Typical Myopathy-Associated hyperglycin A Toxin Remains in Sycamore Seedlings Despite Mowing, Herbicidal Spraying, or Storage in Hay and Silage. And this can be found in the Early View section on the EVJ website. Richard, thank you very much for joining us on this month's EVJ podcast. There's been a lot of coverage um, on atypical myopathy in horses over the last few years. Could you start by telling us a little about the disease process and what causes it?
1: For sure. So um, we've known about atypical myopathy for many years, actually. Um, um, It's called atypical myopathy because The disease is not um, similar to the exertional rhabdomyolysis that most horse vets are much more familiar with. Um, But it's only been in the last few years that we've known the toxin that is associated with this disease, which affects often groups of horses at pasture, often in late autumn or in spring. And the toxin is a toxin called hypoglycin A or HGA. Um, and it's a toxin that's found uh, in Europe in sycamore tree seeds and seedlings, um, and in some other Acer species trees in other parts of the world. This was a toxin that was discovered by Stephanie Valberg and her group in the United States um, because they have a, d- a disease which they call summer, sorry, they call pasture-associated myopathy, uh, which is. Um, almost certainly identical to the atypical myopathy that we recognise in the UK. So it's a, a toxic myopathy that causes a very severe rhabdomyolysis of grazing horses uh, with a mortality that's around about seventy percent um, depending on the depending on the, the treatment.
0: So, what methods are owners and livery yard managers currently undertaking to reduce the risk of ingesting the hypoglycin A from these sycamore seedlings?
1: Yeah, well, the the big concern in the spring is are the seedlings that that often grow in profusion on pastures, and um, I'm sure most horse vets have received telephone calls from from their clients because um, certainly in some years. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of these seedlings in some pastures. And people have tried to control these in various different ways. I mean, the obvious way is to remove the horse from the field, um, and that's the probably the, the best way. But in many situations, that's just not practical. Um, so alternatives are to f- fence off the areas uh, where there are seedlings growing. But everybody knows that the typical uh, shape and appearance of sycamore seeds and because of their, the way they fly through the air like helicopters, they can go for hundreds of metres and blown by the wind, which means that sometimes an entire field can have these seedlings growing in them. So, fencing off the pasture is also not always practical. So, other people um, have advocated mowing the seedlings um, and spraying them with uh, some of these herbicides that um, only kill broad-leafed um, plants and, and not the underlying grass. Uh, so we were interested in the the possible effect of mowing and herbicidal spraying to see whether it actually would reduce the amount of herb, um, of hyperglycin A in these seedlings.
0: Okay, so I understand that you looked at the treatment of seedlings um, treatment of seedling contamination by mowing and by herbicide treatments, and you looked at the levels of this hyperglycin A also in hay and silage. So how did you carry these experiments out? What was your um, study protocol?
1: Okay, so this is work that's been done by a PhD student in my group, Sonia Gonzalez-Medina, and it's work that's been funded uh, by the Horse Trust. So what Sonia did was she identified some pastures where there were lots of these sycamore seedlings growing, um, and she divided them into various different groups. But one group was a, a group of seedlings that Effectively, she mowed. Uh, she did this just by cutting the seedlings at stem length, um, just to, just around about sort of grass height. Um, and another group, uh, she sprayed uh, with one of two different uh, sort of commonly used herbicides. Um, and uh, she collected samples just before doing these, either the mowing and the spraying, and then at repeated intervals afterwards for out to two weeks following. Uh, the intervention, um, and then with these samples, then measured the amount of hyperglycin A toxin that there was present within them, so before and then subsequent to either mowing or herbicidal spraying, um, and then following them up uh, to see the results
0: and how did you look at the hay and silage
1: okay, so um, that was done in two different ways so so my laboratory actually receives samples that are sent in by uh, horse uh, by by horse owners who are worried about the possibility that a sample, a plant sample, might contain hyperglycin A, uh, and we were sent some samples from um, seeds that were present or f- were found within uh, bales of hay or silage. But also, Sonia did a study where she actually was able to uh, collect some seedlings and then put them into. Uh, silage before it was made and then analysed them six months later. Um, So some of it was fortuitous because of samples that were sent in and then others were, uh, if you like, artificially created by us to test the hypothesis that hyperglycin A might still be present after storage in either hay or silage.
0: So did you find any successful reduction in the HGA in contaminated pastures treated with either method?
1: So we were we were surprised by the results. Basically, it, it turns out that if you if you cut the seedlings uh, and let them wither on the pasture for out to two weeks, the amount of hyperglycin A effectively does not reduce at all over that two week period. And in fact, we, we presented some evidence that suggested that certainly in in the youngest seedlings, so they're the ones that have the immature um, leaves known as cotyledons um, the youngest seedlings seem to actually have an increase in their hyperglycine A uh, within the first two two days following cutting uh, and then it declines again but um, out to two weeks basically the amount of hyperglycin A remained the same and then we saw something very similar in the herbicidal treatment group. So there was no effect of the herbicide on the amount of hypoglycin A um, in the seedlings out to two weeks. Now, we didn't follow the experiment out for beyond two weeks. In retrospect, it would have been interesting to have done that, but that wasn't part of our experimental design. But the conclusion is that, at least within the two-week interval, after both mowing the seedlings and herbicidal spraying of the seedlings, we did not see any decline in the amount of toxin found within them.
0: And what kind of levels of hyperglycin A did you find in the seedlings in the hay and silage?
1: Um, the, the the point, I suppose, the, the relevant point is that the amount that was found within the samples that were stored in hay and silage still contained appreciable amounts of hyperglycin A. Um, there was a decline from the um, pre-storage samples um, but there was still a a significant amount and certainly I, I, although we we don't have good data backing this up I would think that if a horse ate significant amounts of, of, of seedlings or seeds that were present within stored hay or silage they, they still could uh, well be uh, intoxicated or poisoned from it. Um, so, there seemed to be a decline, but the end numbers were not really large enough to know for sure whether that was a statistically significant decline. The important point is that we found large amounts of hyperglycin A in, in the seedlings and seeds, despite the storage for up to six months.
0: Mm. So, going back to the mode seedlings, why do you think the levels of HGA increased slightly?
1: Yeah, that's a a point that we've we've discussed quite a lot within the group um, we don't know for sure um, but we speculate that that it may be that um, when a plant becomes stressed uh, in this case by by cutting it um, there may actually be local increased um, production of hyperglycin a in the cut seedling within the first you know, two days and it may be that this is a a strategy that the, that the growing seedlings employ to reduce the effect of grazing. You can imagine that if the seedlings are being grazed by animals, um, there's a, you know, that has the same tendency to as cutting. And if that across all the seedlings results in some of them increasing the amount of hyperglycine A, maybe that makes them less palatable for Uh, the grazing of animals and so on so it's speculation but we think that that might be partly responsible at least
0: and the herbicide as you explained failed to reduce the hga levels as well why do you think this was and do you think other types of herbicide could be more successful
1: yes it it's it's hard to know for sure the 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 use of herbicides, of course, is is tricky because um, people don't want to kill off the the underlying grass. They just want to kill off the seedlings. So most people recommend certain herbicides, and in particular, the the class of herbicides that that Sonia used in her experiments, which are auxin mimetics. Now, most people will know that auxins are hormones that that plants use um, to maintain their metabolism and their growth. Um, And by using these um, auxin mimetics you can disrupt their normal growth and that's what usually kills the plant over time. Now um, it probably is the case that the auxin mimetics don't have any effect on the pathways associated with A production and that's why we did not see a, a significant decline. Now it's possible of course I suppose that other herbicides that have different modes of action might result in reduced amounts of hyperglycin A. The problem though is that many of these other types of herbicides, some of the um, uh, types that are are used for spraying weeds and so on, actually would have the effect of killing the grass as well. So um, probably not of much use. What we don't know is whether the herbicides. Um, if we had followed the experiment out for beyond two weeks, eventually to the point where the where the plants or the seedlings wither away entirely, it would have had the effect um, of having reduced hypoglycina. A. am guessing that once the the plant you know withers entirely to the extent that it's it's disappeared or it's been blown away, then clearly that's not a problem anymore. Um, but that can take certainly beyond 2 weeks as per our experiment and I'm I'm guessing we're looking at you know 3 to 4 weeks at least and so on and and probably we need to do another experiment in a, in a future year to see whether a, a longer term um experiment with spraying might have the result of reduced A. from a practical perspective of course though the you know the, the people who have clients who are worried about this they want A quick fix they want to be able to put their horses back on the pasture as quickly as possible and and waiting for beyond two weeks or even out to a month may not be any good for them and so certainly our data from this paper that's been published would suggest that within the two-week interval uh, it's still not safe to put horses back on the pasture.
0: So that kind of covers my next question um, which would be what's your take-home message what advice can you give to practicing vets in the management of sycamore seedlings this spring.
1: Yeah, that's that's obviously a great question and and the most pertinent question for all of this work. And I, I would love to say that, that the result of this paper is that we've got a, an easy answer for, for for horse vets who've got worried clients. I'm I'm afraid the conclusion at the moment anyway is that is that really what you have to do is you have to cut the the seedlings. Uh, by mowing them and then you need need some way of um picking up the cuttings um you know that's easy with with some types of, of lawn mower or, or, or pasture vacuums and so on but less easy with others um if that's not an option then i'm afraid that the the other solution is just to take the horse off the pasture entirely for at least the time that the seedlings are still there um, not not simple I know but certainly that's the current advice.
0: Great well Richard thank you for joining us especially at this time of year um, on the EVJ podcast.
1: Thanks very much Uh, I'm I'm glad we've had this conversation and people would always be welcome to contact the laboratory if they want to want further advice on either this paper or other aspects of, of the testing that we're doing.
0: Great thanks very much. Thank you. James Brown is a clinical assistant professor of equine surgery at the Marianne DuPont Scott University in Virginia. He joins us to discuss the recent paper titled, Short-Term Outcome and Risk Factors for Post-Operative Complications Following Umbilical Resection in 82 Foles. James, thank you very much for joining us on the April EVJ podcast. Um, can I start by asking, uh, at what age do you expect to identify umbilical, umbilical infections, and how do they usually present?
2: Um, yeah, I can answer that. Um, really, from birth to anywhere three weeks of age, I think um, our study sort of showed that around uh, the, the mean time of surgery in our study was 12 days. Um, you know, There were some foals that we classified as congenital, i.e., you know, present from birth and um, so we had some infections that happened at the time around the time of uh, birth and there were some patent uracuses but most of the time we're going to be in that window around um, the middle of uh, around 12 days.
0: Okay so what kind of secondary complications um, are associated with this disease process in the current literature and how does this affect the outcome
2: Okay, we have um, a number of complications that were reported in the literature when we are kind of doing our literature search, and probably the biggest ones were uh, septic arthritis and osteomyelitis. And osteomyelitis it, it really in that respect is a lot of it's referring to physitis. Um, there are folds that will have umbilical uh, adhesions to abdominal contents, Um we know also that probably septic foals are more, uh, you know, predisposed to pneumonia, um, diarrhea. Um, there's even been an aortic aneurysm uh, reported. Um, so there's the things that are reported in the literature.
0: Okay. And what hypotheses were tested in, in this paper?
2: Uh, we, we were kind of working. Um, there was a recent study that it looked at... Um, Umbilical resection in the population of foals. and uh, one of the things that, that was highlighted in that paper, they found a high, high fatality rate in foals um, undergoing umbilical resection that experienced post-operative complications. So our, our study really set out to a, try to identify pre and intraoperative risk factors uh, that we associated with post-operative complications. Um, so that we could try to um, document that and and, and figure out um, how we could, um, uh, you know, prognosticate from that. So really our our hypothesis um, was that whether there was uh, preoperative septic diseases would increase the odds of postoperative complications and therefore uh, decrease the odds of being alive at hospital discharge.
0: Okay, so could you tell us a bit about the study design and how the foals were managed?
2: This was, this was a, a retrospective study of foals um, that, that underwent surgery to treat umbilical infection uh, or, or patent reacus or a combination of both. So we excluded um, any routine umbilical surgery such as that may occur as part of a bladder um, rupture repair um, part of an abdominal exploration, so really um, we were focusing on those that were we were purposely taking out the um, umbilical remnants. Um, the The diagnosis for the cases was that you know they had to have some external signs of infection, like thickening, um, drainage, of permanent material, um, or they were if they're in cases of patency, uh, urine was observed. Ex- exiting the external umbilical remnant. And uh, we had uh, some cases um, that were uh, treated medically. Um, A fair number of those um, were treated medically before um, the decision was made that they weren't responding as appropriately or they failed to respond, um, and then they would be taken to surgery. Um, For the second part of your question there, how were the foals managed, well, Post-operatively, they were managed with um, antimicrobials for 72 hours and and non-steroidals plus any treatment for concurrent uh, conditions such as joint infections and so forth. So that's how the foals were managed um, without going into it in great detail.
0: Okay, so how many foals did you include in the study? Um, What was their signalment?
2: We... We had 82 foals that met the inclusion criteria. Um, uh, 63% of them were males, the, um, the remainder females obviously. The thoroughbreds represented not quite 60% of the population with uh, warm blood foals um, next. And then we had some small number of standard breads, and then there was a mixture of the remaining breeds. Um, as I said, the mean age at the time of surgery, um, was around twelve to thirteen days. The um, and some of these um, foals were um, operated um, at the time of presentation. Um, some developed a condition within hospitalisation for other conditions, and then they had surgery in that. Um, but we found that uh, one of the things that our referring veterinarian population became comfortable with us, uh, the surgery and the and the outcome that they would um, specifically refer the folding for umbilical resection.
0: Okay, I know you took um, blood, umbilical, and synovial fluid um, to culture. Did you find any associations between the results of these?
2: We, we were, um, based on those, uh, those cultures, we had um, a lot more success um, culturing the um the actual uh, umbilical remnants um and we um, so we had uh, 70 or out of those cases 82 folds we had 52 that were positive in in that group the blood cultures we had a lot, a lot less that were positive uh, 18 folds um and the synovial fluid of uh, was positive of of 19 fold uh, 7 of 19 fold so there was really no correlation between all three sites, um, the, the umbilicus and the blood and the synovial fluid. Um, and between the blood and the umbilical cultures, we only had one case that was that was correlated. Um, I think that's what uh, other studies have have shown that there's a poor correlation between uh, culturing those various sites.
0: Okay, and what kind of concurrent diseases were identified? Um, And how did these affect the outcome? Uh,
2: There was a number of concurrent diseases. Actually, it was uh, about 60% of the cases uh, had concurrent diseases. Um, The two main ones were diarrhea and septic joints. We had 19 of each of those. And now, obviously, some of these foals had multiple concurrent uh, diseases. But those two really um, were the main ones. And uh, as we find out in the results, that septic joints really had um, a bearing on um, survival, um, and 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 that it was a pretty important finding of the study.
0: Okay, um, what incidents suffered um, from post-op complications after the umbilical resections, um, and what affected this this number?
2: Okay, um, we had um, about, or had 32 of 82, which is 39%, had post-operative complications. Now, um, some of them just had single, um, a small number had uh, a num- uh, two, and one foal had three. The most um, important um, post-operative complication that occurred um, was the development of a new septic joint or physis in eight foals. Um, and that was the number one post-operative complication. Um, we had anesthesia-related issues in six. We had some uh, thrombophlebitis in six, and we had surgical site infection and colic and diarrhea and pneumonia. Um, but overall, the most significant one, because it turned out to be um, um, statistically significant, was the development of a new septic joint or physis. And... Interestingly, all the ones that did develop a new, a new, set, new joint or physis infection, they all had one uh, septic joint or physis before um, surgery.
0: So did these results change the way you deal with these clinical cases? Um, and do you have a take-home message for clinicians?
2: Well, I think um, that the, the firstly that, you know, overall, the, the short-term survival following uh, surgical excision of the umbilical remnants is good. We had a, an 89% um, a short-term survival in our study, which is is um, similar to what other reports have, have described. So there doesn't seem to be um, a negative effect of doing surgery as such. However, the big, um, as I said before, the the, the thing which we is came out of this study is that the that pre existing or development of a new septic arthritis event or a physitis um, has has a negative association with survival. So, um, in summary, if, if you develop um, a new septic joint or physis after surgery, you have you know, our, our survival was, was only like 50%. So, the take home from that would be that. Um, aggressive treatment of of septic arthritis and fices is important in in foals and I think we all recognise that and that um, our our, our, um, paper would really emphasise that.
0: Great. Well, thank you for taking your time to share that with us. Oh, You're welcome. Thanks for joining us and please join us again for the next episode.